I mean, we could call Rick an icon. I think mean, that's fair. Fair oh, status. hundred percent. hundred percent. I think icon's above legend. Uh, is it? Are you uncomfortable yet? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, but I'll get there. <laughs> so where do you spend most of your time? Um, uh, mostly Virginia, but uh, a lot of time here and in, increasingly in Phoenix where we just built a house. So, okay. um, we just, and travel and stuff. So why'd you build a house in Phoenix? Uh, cause I hate Florida. Okay. Uh, and, uh, we love the Southwest and the desert and okay. the mountains and all that. So, um, uh, so what's the plan, winter in winter in Phoenix? We're still trying to figure it out. We just closed uh, the house. Finally got built. At, you know, COVID supply chain delays and so on. So we just finally moved in in, in December, and um, we've only been there three times now for like two, three weeks at a time. So we're trying to figure it out. But I, I suspect we'll spend more and more time out there. We were just okay. both there separately. I was in Scottsdale. Where were you, Sedona? I was in, no, I was in in Phoenix. Oh, okay. yeah, we're about an hour north of Scottsdale. Okay. Uh, up in the mountains. Beautiful. I yeah, loved hiking the mountains, though. We would get up every morning and hike the mountains. Yeah, we're, we, um, yeah, we love that. It's, uh, and uh, we just bought a, uh, a Rubicon, so we're doing I was going to say, you got to get the Jeep. We did. We I just got them Wrangler, too. Uh, did you? Not the Rubicon. I got the, uh, the, the EV one. Um, yeah, we, we got the, the uh, 392 V8 Hemi. So you go, like, off-road. It's, yeah. Like, yeah. way off the road. Yeah. Yeah, that's the whole point. So you need the bigger tires for that, right? We've got them, yeah. Okay. You know, 35-inch. Um, this thing's a beast. Uh, okay. If you painted pink, you could do tours. Uh, which my wife bought. If this is black on black. And I looked at her and was like, in the Arizona sun, this is not smart. And she goes, yeah, but it's badass. <laughs> Where are they? All right, guys, headphones on, please, and thank you. Notification all right. silence. All right, all right, all right. Notification silence. Notifications. Oh, um, I, f I always forget I'm to I'm going to try that. and give a, a heads up to everybody outside. I'm sure we're all pros, but stay close to your mic. And, yeah, let's rock and roll. Thanks, Nicole. Yeah, Rick, have you been doing the radio for how long? 30 I was going to say, this is like years. second nature for you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, I, I, I stopped at the end of December um, and shifted my radio show to uh, You're daily, daily now. Daily I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. What's that. So what was the motivation to do, to do a daily podcast? It sounds like a, sounds like a grind. Uh, it's incredibly easy. It's okay. actually easier than my weekly radio show was. Okay. Because as a podcast, as you know, we don't have to pay attention to the clock. It yeah. doesn't matter. You know, with radio, you're literally down to the second, and um, and being weekly, I wasn't as always able to stay as urgent, topical, uh, timely. Uh, so now with the daily podcast, they're short; um, they're three to ten minutes. Uh, Friday is long form, an hour, hour and a half uh, with interviews, but it's just quick, easy for people to digest and grab it real fast. And it's stuff you got to know right now, and it's uh, it's it's fun. It's fun so you did the radio show for how, so when did you start? Nineties. I it was thirty seven years. Thirty. 37 years. So, uh, so what was it like shutting that down? You're yeah. like, I'm not going away. I'm just changing formats. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was time. It was good. You know, the technology just argues for podcasting. Um, but uh, uh, there's a little bit of antipathy. I mean, I've been doing it for so long. I was a top 100 talk radio host uh, and uh, half a million listeners each week. Um, my podcast, you know, picked up a lot of that. I'm in the top 1% of all podcasts. And um, uh, it, you know, it's, it, 
the, audi- the audience is going to follow you. Yeah. So yeah. if they were listening to the radio, why wouldn't they listen to the podcast? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So. And you guys produce it yourself or do yeah, you have- Yeah, I've built a studio, uh, audio video studio uh, in my house. We had, we had the room to do it. So we've got a really nice setup and, and my production team and so on. And uh, my video producer uh, worked for Rush Limbaugh for 15 years. So I've, I've got one of the top uh, radio video producers. and so- Killer. Yeah. So, uh, oh, so where are you putting the video? Is it YouTube? It's on uh, – yeah, we're putting it everywhere. So the it's a podcast and videocast. The, the Monday through Thursday is podcast only. Friday is podcast videocast. And um, it's everywhere. It's everywhere you get podcasts and YouTube. And But you had, call, you had people call in the radio show obviously, right? Yeah, the radio show was call in. This yeah. is not. Do you miss uh, that part of it? Yeah, that's the most fun is audience interaction. Yeah. That's why I like live on stage more than anything uh, and even a webinar. Um, that, that, that's – an awful lot of fun. Uh, the one disadvantage of podcasting, which we had to, I had to just come to terms with, is the copyright problem. On radio, because I'm a member of uh, SAG-AFTRA, um, I had the ability to use uh, any audio file I wanted. So I can take music clips and movie clips and so on. And, and my show was really well known for its high entertainment yes. value because of just really cool sound mm. effects. You can't do that in podcasting. Yeah. There's no way to do it? Not, not legally, no. Well, we run that on YouTube. There's certain clips and music that you just can't if you, use. You can't, if you do you the rocky do music, like just, just like five seconds, they'll, well, they'll cut the, you. The exception right. is there are music podcasts that are reviewing music, and they can play the music, and it's some kind of accept, like some kind of a journalistic exception. The the problem is that uh, although we could buy the rights to play the music, the problem is that the uh, song uh, rights agencies are all using uh, bots to listen. Yeah. And the bots are too dumb to realize you've bought the rights. So then you'll just go, start getting served every, every day. And they demand that you take it down. And you say, but I own the rights. So you file an appeal. This whole thing takes two, three weeks. And I'm like, the podcast is now three weeks old. And it, it's so the short answer is no sound effects. Yeah. Okay. All right. But so I think the audience can Get past that. They want the essence of what you're saying. Yeah, they want. Anyway. Yeah, my. I, I take the attitude. They want me, not uh, that's right. Music. So, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they get. <laughs> they could play. They could play audio clips <laughs> some other time. Exactly. Um, your topics, like I get the email blast every night. So your topics seem to be pretty much all over the map. How do you decide what you're going to talk about each day? Is that pre-planned or it's however you feel? It's what's going on. Uh, actually, it, I'm glad that you feel that it's all over the map because yeah. that's how I want it to feel. I yes. don't want you to anticipate what's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, I limit it to five subjects. Okay. Uh, uh, longevity, retirement security, exponential technologies, crypto, and health and wellness. And all of those five follow in a specific theme uh, for continuity, but I deliver it in a way that you don't realize that's what I'm doing. Yeah, and you could fit a lot of under those umbrellas anyway. Yes. Right. They're yes. pretty they're, – a they're, lot of things tie into that. Absolutely right. So okay. uh, I, I like to say that I'm dealing with the subjects that matter most. Um, but in fact, to your point, Josh, these are the subjects that are so broad that – yeah. I'm not terribly restricted in what I'm talking about. Okay. Awesome. Well, we're going to try to hit all of your big topics today. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the doc, but it's going to be a, a best of Rick Edelman for sure. <laughs> um, and a lot of this stuff I've really been dying to ask you about anyway. Uh, I think I think we, we're going to start with just the advisory industry, mm-hmm. um, and then we'll get a little bit deeper into the science and tech stuff. And the last time I saw you speak live, it's a long time ago now, 
you were talking about longevity. Yeah. Um, that's the single other than the crypto. Thing. Like right. longevity is it. Shut off everything else. That's the only thing that matters. You really feel that way? Absolutely. All right. So we'll spend a lot of time. Because it affects on that. everything else. Everything is a domino from that one word. Okay. I think I personally maybe have like eight years left. <laughs> so <laughs> we can get you at least eight and a half, Josh. Ben <laughs> might be one of your hundred and twenty year old yeah. super what are you a super annual annual or something? Uh might maybe. But you, okay. Josh, I got bad news for you. Go. You're gonna be around a lot longer than you think. Maybe my head. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. Well, I haven't I haven't saved for that. Uh how are we looking on time? Michael looked like he was just saying goodbye already with that shoulder tap there. Nice knowing you. Um, when you do the longevity talk, people, at least the, what I saw in, I think you maybe were at Tiburon. Mm-hmm. People in the audience were like, no. Right. There's a lot of denial. Okay, but it's not— They were also denying over crypto when I first talk, talked about that at Tiburon. Well, there's probably still the same amount of skepticism on crypto now. And they're equally wrong. Okay. All right. Love it. I, lo- I love it. I want you to come out. Uh, come out swinging. Are you going in May? I am. Okay. I'll be there. Good. See so I haven't been since pre-pandemic, I guess. Uh, I was at one. Uh, yeah, I broke my. I, I, I'm one of the five. I'm in the top five of Tiburon attendees. Uh, been, you like the Tom Hanks of Tiburon? Uh, yeah. Well, I got nothing <laughs> else to do. So, uh, Chip keeps letting me go. Uh, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it. It'll It'll be nice to, to catch up with everybody. Absolutely. So the one thing I don't love the panel thing. For me personally, yeah. But he's like Josh. All I have is panels. He, right, and he's he's trying to cram as many people as I he totally can on stage. I totally get it. I totally get it. Chip is the man. Are we good? One second. Zero percent chance. That's coming out of my computer. Yep. We wanted the, we wanted the headphones. Try again. Zero percent chance. Yep. There we go. We got it. We got it. Now we're cooking with okay, the Okay, this is what a child I am. So I have my I have my sound effects. I don't know if they're copyrighted, but you'll you'll be exempted from any issues that arise from that. Okay, it's a deal. All right, we ready to rock and roll? Yep. What show is this? Eighty-five? No, no, no. This could be eighty-nine. Eighty-nine. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Crane Shares. Josh, one of the most popular categories of ETFs over the last couple of years has been covered call strategies. Why do you think that is? Uh, people are looking people like to income. be long and also get income. Yeah, I get it. So Crane Shares has this product. The ETF is Clip with a K. K-Lip. Is it K-Lip? I just said K-Lip. That's what I'm calling it. K-Lip writes, is a covered call strategy on K-Web, which is the Chinese internet sector ETF. So let me get this straight. You earn income from the covered calls that they're selling, and they're selling them against the gigantic technology companies that are based in China. You said it. JD.com. You said Alibaba, it. Alibaba, Tencent. Can do a do. Did I say that right? Okay. So where can we learn more about the strategy? To learn more about the opportunities and risk of investing in Calip, go to craneshares.com slash Legendary, legendary episode today. 
I mean, we haven't done it yet, so we'll, we'll see. But I'm pretty sure this is going to be one for the ages. Um, I'm in a room right now with the person who I consider to be... Um, don't blush when I say this, all right? Okay. The person who I consider to be the 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 architect of everything that we are are currently doing at our firm. Rick did it 20 and 30 years before we would have ever thought of it. And uh, I'm just, I'm so honored that you're here. I'm a huge fan of yours. I've read your books. I've listened to your show. I've seen you speak live. Uh, I, I, th- I just think the world of everything that you've done and contributed to the profession. Here is the formal write-up that we've done for you. Rick is the founder of Edelman Financial Engines, an RIA with $300 billion in assets under management. Rick is a New York Times bestselling author, hosts the Truth About Your Future podcast, and is the founder of the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. Rick Edelman, welcome to the show. Josh, thank you. I really the crowd's going nuts. You hear that? I, as well, they should. <laughs> I'm, I really, I'm humbled and grateful for those very kind comments. Thank okay, uh, and Michael and Ben are here too. I, I'm, I'm thankful. <laughs> um, ben Carlson is the head of institutional asset management at Red Holtz Wealth. You know him from the A Wealth of Common Sense blog. He is part of the compound. He hosts the excellent Portfolio Rescue. Co-hosts uh, Animal Spirits. And Ben, welcome back to New York. Thanks for coming in. Glad to be here. All right, you seem really you seem really fired up. I don't know if we can can we even contain this is something you today. you need to cut from all podcasts. The introduction of the no, guests. I'm trying to it's tell Michael this. You don't no, want Ben to- say you don't want the guests to say thank you for being thank you for having me. Yeah, you got it. You got to pause. No, you really don't because by the time they're here, yeah, they already know the why they're here. So right, just get on with all it. All right, what's your S and P target? <laughs> <laughs> Your icon just agreed with That's me. Real. Oh, I also want to mention, um, I want to do this at the top because I'll be going to this. Um, I'm a keynote speaker at the Vision Conference. Yes, and you that, are. Okay. So tell us tell us what the, um, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals is, and then we'll talk about the event itself. So my, my goal has always been to look ahead at what's coming and make sure that we're giving advice to our clients that is to help them for the future that they're headed toward. And exponential technologies broadly, and in particular, crypto, blockchain digital assets, is a huge asset class that is still under development and growing rapidly, and most advisors know little about it. And it's highly controversial, as we know, for, frankly, lots of good reasons. So at DACFP, I created this as a uh, strictly education. It is a crypto education platform. We teach advisors about this technology so you can figure out what you ought to be telling your clients. Should they invest or if not, uh, why not? And if so, how, how much, where, and so on. Vision is the longest-running largest and most popular crypto investment education conference specifically for financial advisors. And uh, this June in Austin, June 12 to 14, you'll be one of our keynote speakers. I came last year and it was great. Uh, It's a wonderfully huge event. We've got Patrick McHenry, the chair of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, who's a huge crypto fan. And we've also got on the flip side, the head of SEC's crypto enforcement division. Right, don't put us on the same day. So I'll I'm try. A little not bit, to. I'm a little bit afraid. Yeah. Is it like is isn't it a little bit scary? Not for you, but maybe for a, a like 
a regular financial advisor to even have public opinions on crypto right now? No, it's uh, not. It's only if your public opinions are uninformed. We or, see if a, or if you're like shilling a coin or something. Yeah, if you're saying and doing stupid things, the same thing would be true in the stock market. That's right. You, you doing a pump and dump scheme on a uh, penny stock, right. that's very different from recommending the S&P 500. Yeah. So depending on what you're doing, how you're doing it, and what you're saying, yeah, what you should deserve to go to jail. On the other hand, if you fail to do it right, you're doing yourself, your practice, your clients a huge disservice. And what we teach is how to get it right. Without ever recommending Bitcoin, do you understand what the tax rules are? Are you helping your client with the estate planning, with uh, helping them understand the portfolio allocation and investment thesis? It begins with a very simple premise. Your clients own crypto. Many advisors you really in, feel that way. They're in denial about this. You really feel that the typical advisor has a lot of clients who own crypto. I'll make a bet with you. Okay, thirty of your clients own Bitcoin. Wow. We did a did we do a I, survey? I was going to get throw out twenty percent, a yeah. third. And the reason I say that is nationally, 22% of adults in the U.S. Now, we know that the people who are buying crypto tend to be more affluent. They have the money to invest. And you deal with affluent people. And so your clients, who are often being uh, inspired by their children, are having an exposure to Bitcoin. It might not be a lot, but they have an exposure. And if you aren't talking to them about the record keeping, the tax implications, tax reporting, if you aren't helping them avoid the scams and the frauds, of which we know there are lots. Yeah, that alone is, is a service to clients. Is right. If they bring something to you to be able to either rip it apart or say, okay, I'll sign off on it, but here's the amount you should do it in. And for example, how to avoid the FTXs of the world. Uh, or for example, did you realize, most advisors don't know this, that Bitcoin is not subject to the wash sale rule. Mm. Which means you could, last year when Bitcoin was down 70%, you could tell your client to sell it, immediately rebuy it, preserve the allocation while capturing the tax loss. Think of the value add you're giving your client without ever having anything to do with whether you're telling them to buy it or not. I think the reason why advisors don't speak to this, and this goes to your vision and the, and the what's it, DAC FP, mm -hmm. is because advisors never want to be in a position of embarrassing themselves in front of a client. Yes. Looking like they don't know right. and are not professionals and are not knowledgeable. Right. So that's why there's such a key, there's a huge gap of education. You're absolutely right. The problem is that crypto grew up outside of Wall Street. Right. So firms have no internal institutional knowledge. There's nobody on staff who can provide crypto training. Mm. And because of the uncertainty in a regulatory environment, they don't know if they want to recommend crypto or, or make it available. So their attitude is, don't talk about it. How does that serve the client? Yeah. Therefore, we focus on education. I don't care whether you like it or not. I don't care if you recommend it or not. I put it in the category kind of like annuities. We all have strong opinions about annuities, love them or hate them. But even Not if as you, strong as Ken, but yeah. <laughs> even if you hate annuities, you understand the tax rules. You understand how they work. You know the difference between an owner and a beneficiary. You can talk intelligently to your client. I'm simply saying you should be able to do the same thing with crypto. Do you, so, do you see a, an ebb and flow of advisor interest in your programs with the prices like retail where – more advisors become more interested in learning about it when the prices are up and less when it's down? There's always that behavioral finance mistake that people make. But what is fascinating to me that I wouldn't have guessed, Ben, having watched Bitcoin drop 70% in 2022, I would have thought interest across the board would have dropped. It didn't. The number of consumers who own Bitcoin rose. The number of advisors who own it rose. We're now at the point where, according to the last survey I saw, 47% of financial advisors, nearly half, personally own Bitcoin. That, so that I would believe. Yeah. But only 12%. Finance adjacent, and they're all exposed to, you know, Wall Street Journal stories on Bitcoin. Like yes. that, that I totally would but believe. But the problem, Josh, is that only 12% 
are talking about it with clients. I think there's a problem from a practice management perspective. If I was your client and you didn't tell me you were buying it, I got to wonder what else are you not telling me? Well, as long as I wasn't buying it at 70000 probably. Well, what do you, where do you think the hurdle is? The lack of education or the fear of, of, of regulatory? Like what? Both. What's the, so, okay, but Both. like wh- which one you think weighs heavier on a, a typical RIA representative? I think it's the regulatory. Well, and the reason that RIAs feel that way is lack of education because they feel that the regulations don't let them. They're wrong. They don't understand the real state of regulatory status in, in the United States, and they fail to understand that there are plenty of rules in place right now that allow you to engage in crypto in a totally compliant, safe way. Is the best thing to tell people, just treat it like a security, whether it is or not? Correct. Okay. So I remember you saying that a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you had been doing that for the last few years, it's probably the has been the right approach. Like let's, whether it becomes a security or it doesn't, or they fight this out for another five years, just pretend that it is and and stay on the safe side. The best way to invest is via a security. For example, don't buy Bitcoin directly. Invest in a fund that buys Bitcoin or invest in a crypto ETF, which invests in publicly traded stocks that are companies building the technology. You prefer that approach to direct uh, ownership in the coins themselves? Well, I believe in diversification, so I believe in doing all the above. Okay. Wouldn't the Got Bitcoin it. ETF make it so much easier for advisors, though? I know they have yes. the futures one, but if they if they yes. had an ETF tomorrow, wouldn't advisors say, all right, the gray area here is done. There's a Bitcoin ETF. It tracks. It holds Bitcoin. Correct. 75% of advisors say they're waiting for that Bitcoin ETF, and the SEC, under Gensler, continues to refuse to allow it. And the problem is, by the time the SEC says yes, what would the price of Bitcoin be? You might have missed out. I think you will miss out on a massive uh, wealth creation opportunity. Do people ask you what you think the price of Bitcoin will be? All I know, the time. I know you don't give people <laughs> stock market you know. Direction. No, but I do, I do say what I predict Bitcoin is going to be. Let's, I believe that by it. summer of 25, Bitcoin will be 150000 Okay. What is that based on? It's based on the halvenings, which occur every four years to the price. Where of, they, would do, they, they make it harder to mine, therefore more valuable? Correct. The, okay. the number of Bitcoins you receive as a reward for mining gets cut in half at roughly every four years. Right. And if you look historically at all the past halvenings and you look at the price of Bitcoin within 18 months of each one, that correlates to saying that Bitcoin is going to be in the 130 to 175,000 range summer of 25. Rick, I've heard you talk about for people that are curious, that do want exposure, that 1%, give or take, is, uh, is the right number. What do you advocate, not specific numbers, but for people that are like super bullish, like what's a reasonable place to be? Like an, without, ups, like an upside limit? Without being irresponsible. It depends on how much money you're willing to lose and what your total net worth is. The, the more risk you're willing to take and the more you're worth, a 20% allocation to crypto is not um, insane. But that's a pretty small population I just right, described. Right, Most right. people, I would never suggest that. I would say low single digits, mm-hmm. one, two, three percent of the portfolio. I think, I think because people that aren't deeply familiar with it, in a 70% drawdown, they're going to blow out. That's what. That's when they'll lose. They'll lose faith right. in it at the exact wrong time. And that's why I want your allocation to be so low that you won't bother blowing it out when it's down. Is this mostly about regret minimization? If you yes. do three percent of your portfolio, you will. Your life will probably not be changed, even if Bitcoin goes to one hundred fifty thousand. Correct. But 
you will feel as though you got some of that upside and you were smart and- It will materially improve your net worth. If you're a typical, you know, six-figure, seven-figure client, and you do have a 2 or 3% allocation, I believe that Bitcoin will materially improve your net worth in the future. But if it fails, it won't adversely harm your future financial security, which means the risk-reward ratio is wonderful, yeah. and there's no reason not to invest. The way I phrase it is, if you do Bitcoin and it works, it'll materially help. But if you don't do it because you hate it or you dislike it or you are fearful of it or you are suspicious of the regulation and you do zero, you could be 100% wrong. Well, that's the, I said this on the show a couple of weeks ago, but that's why I initially bought. Because if if it went to $150,000 and I didn't own it, I would never forgive myself. Yeah. Well, we all remember the internet and we all missed it. Mm. Well, let's not miss this one. This is internet 3.0. Let's not miss this one. Right. Uh, we're going to put a pin in in, uh, in the coin stuff. We're going to get to that later. But I wanted to ask you, just like your overarching take on the state of the advice business circa 2023, how far do you feel that the profession has come since, let's say, the pre-pandemic days? I feel like things have accelerated and advisors have gotten much better at what they do. But maybe you have a maybe you have an alternate take. Well, how do you define Josh gotten better? More tech, more tech enabled, which enables them to do more for clients horizontally and to take be able to take on more scale than they had been able to prior. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think we're all aware that the inter- that the pandemic forced us to adapt tech and we have become more efficient by doing Zoom meetings instead of face to face. Uh, the uh, tech environment has grown in, in, in quality and breadth of availability. So all that, sure, has improved practice management. But at the same time, I think that we have all become victims uh, of that uh, of that tech. And not just the tech, but the experience and data that the tech has contributed to. And what I'm referring to is the fact that when I first started, uh, the 1980s, it was an incredibly divergent environment. There weren't very many advisors in the first place. In fact, when I started- Broke brokers. Yeah. And and just to give you a crazy statistic, when I started as an advisor, there were 400 mutual funds. (laughs) (laughs) And there was no such thing as an index fund, which means everybody was trying to pick, literally, the best performing, market outperforming strategy Out of 400. Yeah. <laughs> and so you couldn't find two advisors who did the same thing. Everybody was truly different. And as a result, the experience and the results were truly different. When did like the, the term RIA even come into oh, like passing? When not until the late 90s. Okay. It became a, a thing where it became commonplace. You fast forward to today, and what do we have? Everybody's now an RIA. They're not brokers. Mm. We're fee-based, not commission-based. And most importantly, we now have decades of data on the right way to manage money. So what are we doing? We're all doing diversification. We're all doing long-term perspective. We're all focusing on rebalancing, dollar-cost averaging, tax-loss harvesting. We all understand Markowitz and modern portfolio theory and the efficient frontier and and indexing. It's like a curriculum now. Right. And as a result, we're all doing it pretty much the same. So the downside of using all this wonderful tech that allows us to rebalance and look at our uh, tax-loss harvesting and all that kind of good stuff, the result is... Every advisor is increasingly looking like every other advisor. How do you differentiate when your fee is kind of the same and the services are kind of the same and the market results are kind of the same? Golf. (laughs) 
<laughs> it becomes fuzzy stuff, doesn't it? Yeah. It's the client experience. It is the personality. It is that newness. And frankly, that takes us back to our crypto conversation. I think crypto, at the end of the day, is a market differentiator. You have an opportunity to talk about something with your clients that other advisors aren't talking about because they don't know what the heck it is. So the key for financial success and practice management is doing things, saying things, providing things that other advisors are well, not. Well, the thing that you mentioned is that differentiated personality and trust is obviously a big thing. You got into it early with the radio show, yeah. right? And, and Josh always says, like, people prefer to work with people that they trust or like, mm -hmm. regardless of, you know, sometimes regardless like of All things expertise. being equal, yeah, people everything will else work equal. with someone they like. Right. So, so we hear this from advisors all the time asking us, like, I want to get into the content machine. I want to, I want to, communicate with my clients or prospects in a different way. And and we started it in blogging, you started it in radio. What advice do you give to advisors that come to you and say, like, I, I want to use this as, as a differentiator. How do I start the content game? So the for me, I, you can't build your business the way I built mine. It literally doesn't exist. When I was on the radio, I was the first. And there were huge gatekeepers at the radio stations. So I was the champion of broadcasting, taking my message and getting it out to the mass market in a way that literally— you did it first, you did it better than anyone, and, and you really built something, like, with a moat around it. And right. so the key first is the platform. Second is the messaging. What are you saying? And I was saying things that nobody else was saying. I was saying, carry a big, long mortgage. Don't pay it off. Uh, don't invest in muni bonds. Uh, and there were there's just a, so many different areas of advice that what I was saying was different. My advice on college planning and homeownership and estate planning was just radically different than what you heard elsewhere. So my message was not only available everywhere, it was unique. Today, that advice isn't terribly unique. Most advisors have adopted most of what I've said. And thanks to tech, this podcast environment, anybody- The barriers can, of entry to this are way lower than radio. And therefore, here's but what I recommend. Don't do it. No, yes, do it, but okay. do it in the following way. Don't be a broadcaster like I was. Be a narrow caster. Niche. Exactly. Yeah, I always tell people that, I agree. In other words, I know an advisor whose office is across the street from Marriott's world headquarters, and he only works with Marriott executives. I know an advisor in Atlanta only works with Delta pilots. If you're not a Delta pilot, won't take you as a client. I want you to decide the niche that turns you on. You into cars, you're a gearhead, get into guys who are into cars. Um, do you like gardening? Do you like knitting? Do you like cooking? I don't care what it is, but choose the demographic, choose the psychographic. If you are into plumbers, your dad was a plumber, your uncles are plumbers, your brothers are plumbers, and you know everything about plumbing, become the plumbing advisor. Write for plumbing trade association magazines. Go, in, go to the plumbing conventions and have a booth. Target only plumbers. There's I've a lot giving, of them. I've been giving that advice for 10 years. Nobody listens. And it's foolish. They should listen to you, But the people you, that do it, the people that do it, they find their niche. Yep. Uh, I know someone like fish, like fishing is, is his passion yep. and investing is his second passion. And it like it's, it works. Every people other profession, every other profession has done this. Lawyers now specialize in yeah. environmental law, criminal law, corporate law, et cetera. Doctors do this. My brother had surgery not long ago and the surgeon only operates on thumbs. I was like, huh? Not just hands. That's his passion. Thumbs. <laughs> that's it. Now, people fly Thumb, from all thumbs. over the world to have this guy do surgery on their thumbs. He is an incredibly narrow practice and an incredibly successful one. 
Advisors are still acting like generalists. And we know now that the market environment is so complicated. Yeah. We know the truth. Fragmented. Right. We can't be experts in every one of these subjects. Pick your subject, pick your audience, and narrow cast into it, and you will be more successful than ever. I think that's the the pick your audience one is so big because we have people come to us say, I want to build an audience like you guys. And I always say, like, that's the worst. We didn't start our thing to build an audience. It just sort of happened because we were writing what we liked about so yeah, I think you have to have that specialty where you're funneling down as opposed to trying to be wide. Why do you want to be the 20th best podcast talking about financial planning when you could be the first best podcast talking about financial planning in New England and like literally make a name for yourself yep. in that population? You'll ha- it'll be so much easier to build your business, sustain your business. You'll get a flood of referrals like no other way. Yeah. As soon as you convince that one plumber that you're the plumber advisor, that plumber will tell all their plumber friends. That's such a huge insight. Um, Let's backtrack. What do you think that guy's life was like? I only do financial planning for Delta pilots during uh, 2020. (laughs) I think (laughs) business had to skyrocket because the airline industry had come to a collapse. Yeah, actually, you probably got more calls than ever before. The best thing that can happen to us, and I hate to say it, but we all know it's true, the best thing that happens to advisors Bear markets is exactly crashes. Right. Yeah. It's a totally horrible agree. environment. Duncan, edit that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is interesting. So when the market's getting killed and I'm on TV and I don't run away from like, you know, if it, if the Dow's down 900 points and I'm scheduled to be on, I don't call in sick. Right. I go on. Right. And all the stocks and ETFs and, and uh, long-term investing philosophy and all the stuff that I've been saying – it looks terrible in that moment. Um, and people, either on social media or whatever, they'll jeer. They'll be like, oh, see? Like, they think it's like a bad thing. No, you don't understand. The phones in my office are lit up like a Christmas tree right now, sir. Right. You genuinely don't understand how this works. Absolutely right. right. In, a ba- in a bull market, everybody's a genius. But in a bear market, people realize they don't know what they're doing, that their advisor probably isn't of great help because they're not answering the phone. They're embarrassed about what's going on. And this is the time when people realize they're in over their heads and they need better advice and they're looking for someone who can provide it. I think, I think, that's, I think that's really uh, great insight. Um, I want to talk about the events of the spring with the banks, the custodians, the interest rate situation. Uh, this is one of those topics I've been meaning to ask what your thoughts are. I know that like us— What's you, he talking about? Is something happening? <laughs> I know that like us, you deal with all of the brokerage custodians. And, um, you know, the new reality over the last five years is that they've substituted trading revenue dealing with RIAs for uh, fixed income revenue. Right. And that's obviously under the microscope when rates hit 5%. Every consumer in America is like searching, well, what am I actually getting on my cash? Mm-hmm. So that was one facet that affected the advisory industry— but then just generally, like, we we had, like, a, a bank run. Yeah. We had a bank panic. Yep. It came and went inside of two weeks, yep. fortunately. Mm-hmm. But what were you thinking while this was going down? Well, I tweeted immediately. Uh, as one does. That, as one does. <laughs> that the uh, Fed had to come to the rescue uh, okay. uh, to prevent. Um, a collapse, frankly, of the— Bigger uh, risk than moral moral hazard. Oh, yeah, much more so. I, I mean, agree. Uh, it, it was shocking and obscene that they got themselves into this mess. We said the same thing in 08. It's amazing how short-term our memories are uh, because it's the same damn thing that happened in 07 and 08. Uh, here we are again. Uh, but given that that's where we were, there was no choice but, to, but for the FDIC to step in and, and fix it. 
the problem is that there was no bank run until the FDIC opened its big fat mouth. Mm. Uh, Silvergate and uh, Signature Bank and SVB were not in the kind of trouble that the regulators were claiming. This was actually an anti-crypto effort on really their part. I believe that. I totally believe that. Okay. All the evidence suggests it. Uh, and I think that this was an invented um, crisis designed to achieve an agenda uh, that regulators have. And I think that they've created and manufactured this crisis. And the end result is they didn't kill crypto. Bitcoin's prices is, you know, at a two-year high. What they have done is undermined faith and confidence in American banks. Uh, and what's coming next is faith in uh, a, a crisis of faith in money market funds. Okay. Can I play something for you? I want to get your, rea- I want to get your reaction to this. Um, John, are we ready for this? If I could just note something about you, you mentioned your hearing about the recent events in the markets, and I would note there were three banks that failed uh, in those handful of days, those last those four or five days. And two of those banks, the first and the third that failed, Silvergate and uh, Signature, were engaged in the crypto business. I mean, some would you say just said that, were, you know, yeah, crypto okay. banks. So it's interesting just how this was all had some crypto Thank you. narrative as well. It is a misnomer that the failure of Signature Bank was related to crypto. What we saw with Signature Bank is that it had a new-fashioned bank run, and the outflow of deposits uh, were from a broad depositor base, including wholesale food vendors, uh, fiduciaries, trust accounts, law firms. And in fact, the outflow of crypto deposits were in exact proportion to their representation in the depositor base overall. Uh, And in fact, some of those deposit outflows were actually pre-planned. So it's- All right, so that is the New York Department of Financial Services Superintendent Adrian Harris, who is refuting that crypto was involved. But Gensler is saying what you're saying, which is interesting because you guys aren't necessarily on the same side of the issue. Right. Um, so you you genuinely feel that's, that these banks were targeted or yes. that the crypto signature, element- I, thought, I said signature was. They there's, look like they were taken out and shot. There's, there's no question. There's okay. no question they were. So, so the FDIC is in on this with the securities regulators? If you, if you, uh, this is the allegation that people are, are, are arguing over is the fact that in addition to the SEC's efforts uh, to dissuade companies from doing business with uh, in the world of crypto and dissuading the ability of crypto companies to operate, at the same time, the FDIC, the OCC, and the Fed were taking their actions against banks that were doing business with crypto companies, and they have issued memorandum to banks advising them not to engage in Is business with crypto Is this to clear companies. the runway for yeah. uh, the, the Federal Reserve's own digital coin? And, well— Maybe. I, I don't think the two are necessarily incompatible. I think one is actually complementary to the other. But all they're doing is chasing American companies offshore. Coinbase has already said, forget it. We'll go to the U.K. Uh, if you're not going to allow us to do business in the U.S. where we have a clear set of rules, we'll go elsewhere. I mean, look at Gensler's testimony before the House Sur- Financial Services Committee just yesterday. They they blew him away. His his refusal to answer questions, his adamant uh, insistence that crypto is dangerous without providing any evidence uh, to support that fact. All he's doing is harming American economy. He's destroying American jobs, and he's doing a huge disservice to American retail investors. There is no justification for any of this, and that's why there's now a bill in Congress to fire him. Do you think that crypto? deserves to say we want our own rules and then we take take 100-year-old securities laws and say, okay, 
will carve out an exception for you? No, absolutely not. Just the opposite. And the okay. vast majority of crypto companies today are not saying that at all. What the crypto industry is saying is we simply want clarity. We don't really care what the rules are. We just want to know what the rules are because this regulation by enforcement, which is REAs we all know about and we all hate, we can't allow that in the crypto community. Uh, a perfect example is Coinbase. This is a publicly traded company given a permission by the SEC to be publicly traded where they have gone to the SEC dozens of times to say, please tell us which of these coins that are on our platform are securities versus not because if they are securities, we don't want to make them available unless they become registered. The SEC has refused to give them the clarity. And now the SEC slaps them with a Wells notice for selling unregistered securities in an environment where they've been asking for the clarity. This is just Matt, no way Matt to Matt Levine was writing that the clarity is all of these things are securities. And that, if that's the way it is, then fine. Gensler and refused to- what does Coinbase to, do if that's, if, does Coinbase then become an SEC registered exchange? And if so, can they keep the brokerage operation? They shouldn't. In other words, we've, we solved this problem in the 1930s following the crash of 29. We separated exchanges from custodians. We, we solved that a long, long so time ago. what if that's ago. the answer for Coinbase to just say, Be one we're going to locate the exchange in Hong Kong and London, and we're going to operate the brokerage here in the United States? Do one or the other. Yeah. Okay, right split now. them up. Become two separate companies? But you you we don't wouldn't know, allow that in securities. You don't know which way to go in the absence of the regulatory clarity. And for Gensler to say the rules are on the books, those rules didn't contemplate this new innovation, this new technology. And to simply say the laws of the 1930s are applicable, I, I don't know if that's legitimate or not. I don't know if it's all encompassing. I'll give you one simple example. We know that crypto follows capital gains rules for taxation purposes. It's a capital asset. You buy it, you sell it for a profit or a loss. We know how the taxes work. Explain staking, forks, airdrops, mining. Staking looks like a dividend. What? It looks like a dividend, but there's no rule that specifically explains it for you to rely on as a CPA in filling out tax forms. So do you think so we can't Rep McHenry and uh, do you do you think it's realistic that the House and the Senate will be able to uh, agree on how to regulate these assets and then yes. will be willing to usurp existing commodities or securities regulators and what, create a new oversight body or? No, they're not going to do that. They'll simply provide the clarity as to how uh, the organizations ought to behave. Okay. Uh, because there's not a lot of debate. This isn't nearly as complicated or as controversial as people want to make it out to be. I'm not suggesting we need a new regulatory agency. I don't think we do. But it seems like the SEC and the CFTC are not on the same page at all. No, they're not, but it's part of a turf war. They just right. want to have the jurisdiction. So the, the Congress will provide the clarity and with that clarity, everybody will get down to business. You know, it's, it's like in the same thing in the stock market. Investors know how to make money in bull markets and bear markets. We just want to know what kind of environment we're in. In, in the meantime, though, you would agree some of the enforcement actions that the SEC has taken entirely justified because there are people outright stealing. Absolutely. There's far too much fraud and abuse in the marketplace. That's true in any emerging innovative environment. This is why it's so important for advisors to engage because we're better at this due diligence. We're better at oversight and protection than our clients are. And we can protect them in ways that they cannot protect themselves. Many clients are investing too much money or they're buying the wrong coins, like they're buying Dogecoin instead of Bitcoin because they're listening to Elon Musk and 
following his tweets. They're using the wrong platforms, like an offshore entity such as FTX, whereas we can protect them from themselves while giving them the access to the asset class to help them achieve their financial goals. So you keep talking about the technology, and we haven't spoken about it yet. So for the the listener that isn't familiar with it, what is so special about the blockchain technology? Why is it so much better than what we're currently doing? It's simply software. Uh, And this software allows businesses to operate faster, cheaper, safer, with greater transparency and inclusion. Give you a simple uh, illustration of this. Uh, If you want to wire money uh, from one country to another, let's say you're an immigrant worker here in the U.S. and mom's back home in South America and you want to send money to mom. or Western Union. Or you're an international corporation. You want to send money from the U.S. to Europe. You've got to go through uh, the SWIFT system. You've got to wire the money. That takes, on average, five days at a cost of 6.5% in fees and commissions. Wow. With Bitcoin, you can do it in 10 minutes for free. What, if, simply, what if somebody says there's a reason – First, we want to double check the reason why the money is leaving the country or is it stolen or – and then somebody else would say, well, what if there's a mistake in the transmission? The blockchain will codify that mistake into too bad. Well, Josh, you can't fix stupid. Yeah, well – I'm, try- I'm trying every day. I'm <laughs> but trying. What, what about the argument that, okay, if, but, but at least if I'm sending a dollar, I know the other person is getting a dollar. What if I'm sending a dollar of Bitcoin by the time they get it, uh, two days later, it's now 70 cents? Well, first of all, they're not getting it two days later. They're getting it 10 minutes later. I'm saying, but they get it immediately. And then two days later, the dollar is now 70 cents. So as soon as you get it, convert it back into your natural currency. Or let's not use Bitcoin at all. Stable? Use a stable coin. Is the technology you're, like, there's been a million different pitches over the years, and I think it's changed. At first it was going to be, everything's going to be tokenized. And then it's, no, this is a macro hedge. Is your biggest thing with crypto just the technology? Like, what is your biggest pitch for crypto? It's the technology. Uh, We have uh, an environment where we now have the ability, thanks to blockchain technology, where we can tokenize virtually everything. And we're in the process of doing this. We're tokenizing uh, real estate deeds. We're tokenizing... Uh, driver's licenses, medical records, education records, employment records. We're tokenizing artwork. Um, We're tokenizing um, music. Uh, Bruce Springsteen sold his music catalog for $500 million. Dozens of artists have been doing this. The companies that are buying that music are tokenizing it. Rihanna just did this. She just dropped a whole bunch of NFTs that are essentially pieces of ownership of her songs. So as a buyer of that NFT, you're now an owner of her music. Every time her song is played on Spotify, you're earning a piece of the royalty. You're not only being a fan, you're being an owner. The ability to monetize, to be a participant, as opposed to letting Facebook be the owner of the data you upload, now you're an owner of your data. And this ownership capability for recording artists, for graphic artists and designers, uh, for um uh, book authors has never been greater. This this opportunity for wealth creation and ownership, entrepreneurship, is going to change the so world. So that part of it to me seems inevitable. I wanted to I wanted to mention we set Michael and I met with the CEO of one of the biggest asset management firms in the world, and uh, this week, and we talked about you know general advisor topics, mutual funds, ETFs, and I'm like, what else are you excited about? And it just became 30 minutes on. Of, of what you just spoke about. So, but she, but she, How about her, this? her point was I know like you're, uh, shareholders. I, you know, I know who you're talking about. Shareholder <laughs> services costs. Like if you're running a fund, how expensive it is to push that paper around. Ready for this prediction? what the blockchain. Ten, how long? Ten years, ETFs will not exist. They will be tokenized. 
You will right, buy. He, he does know who he's talking about. <laughs> you will buy an NFT that represents a share of an e, of what is today an ETF, and the ability to trade 24/7/365 in a virtually frictionless environment at incredibly low cost. Instant settlement. Instant settlement. Why on earth is this? What is this T plus one, T plus two? Well, nonsense? I never understood that because when I got in the business, it was T plus three, yeah. and now it's T but plus it, two. But wasn't How that, archaic! It's Thirty years. That makes ago. sense, I guess. Whether if there's margin involved to make sure that like the collateral and whatever all that sort of stuff exists. But if you're not trading a margin, why does it need to be T plus whatever it is? Exactly. Yeah, but Rick, in traditional finance, you can make a mistake, and there's a third party that you can call, and you could say, "I put the wrong digit," or. I sent the money to the, a different account. I want to change yeah, bust it. Bust the trade. I think what, what's holding back finance from fully embracing the technology is this code is law, uh, eth, you know, ethos where mistakes really can ruin someone's life and can't be fixed. And there's nobody to talk. There's no 1-800 help. I just f***ed up my account. And so, people want that in finance. Well, of course they want that. So here's what it comes but down too to. too bad. What you're describing is the equivalent of the consumer in the 1920s saying, this Model T is insane. The brakes don't work, the car breaks down, it's incredibly dirty, there's no windshield or headlights. Why would anybody wanna drive a car? Yeah. Well, come on, let's be a little bit patient. Let's give the opportunity for the technology to evolve and develop. We didn't have rules of the road when the Model T was invented. We didn't have stop signs and speed limits and traffic cops. There were people who wanted to ban cars. Of course there were. And guess who that was? The horse and buggy industry because of the competitive threat. Why do you suppose that Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett are two of the biggest haters of Bitcoin? It represents an existential threat on today's banking system. So we need to recognize that the evolution is going to occur. The first thing that happen when we had cars were car accidents that led to calls for rules of the road and that's where we are crypto is only 12 years old give us a little slack will you we're figuring it out we haven't got it all figured out yet but i guarantee you this guaranteed you will have crypto in your portfolio you'll either do it now well, I, I already do i just at, i just hate it at, <laughs> but i have it <laughs> you'll do it now at big risk yeah. and huge uncertainty yes or you'll do it in 10 years when it's incredibly obvious you could have bought general motors so in 1934 yeah. or you can wait to buy general motors today so what comes first is it the consumer facing application like the mention that you're talking about or is it the financial rails that the banks get on that we're not really even necessarily seeing it just is I think it's a, a chicken like commercialization. And egg. You're asking. Yeah, like I think what? you're going to see the ongoing development adoption occurring simultaneously. It's a snowball effect, and the most important thing to realize is that this is a global technology. So any one country trying to kill it can only kill it within their borders. If when we, ch- when China killed Bitcoin, they banned it. All they did was chase all the Bitcoin miners to the U.S. We got thousands of jobs. Well, if we killed crypto in the U.S., they'll just go to Hong Kong. Yeah. Well, Hong go- Kong likes it. London wants it. And the EU just today passed and its the major East. crypto regulation called MICA. They're welcoming crypto. So we did the same thing with stem cell research. We didn't like it morally, so we, we banned it. And all they did was send all the scientists to South Korea and Israel. I agree with a lot of what you say. I just wish there were one example of a consumer product that people who are not into crypto are using and there isn't and it's been 15 years and it could it could come tomorrow for all I know. So what you need to do, Josh. But most crypto is used to buy other crypto. No, 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 no. That's totally untrue. What you need okay. to do is real simple. On April 25th, I'm having a one-hour webinar called 12 Real World Use Cases. There of- are actually 12. 
there are thousands, but I'm going to show you only 12. All right, I'm in. And it's Josh, going, you walked right into the trap. Here. It's going to be I'm, on I'm April in. 25th. I want to learn. It's free. You get one CE credit, and you can register for free at DACFP.com. This guy's so good. It's hey, so, so if it's 10 years and your NFT prediction doesn't come true, what is the reason for crypto not taking – because you said, like, listen, put a small amount into it. That way if it doesn't go right and it, it falls off, it's not going to harm you that much. What's the other side of this where it doesn't work out? What do you mean? What's the other side of this? What, is, what, what does make it look it like? Not work? If what this all, if this all, do, if, if your prediction about, prediction about crypto don't come true, what, what would be the scenario where that happens? Is it just regulation stomps it, or what? No, the reason it won't come true is the same reason that Lotus One Two Three no longer exists. Because something better came along. Right. Oh, okay, that's it. I would buy that. Uh, back to the original question, though. But so. Y- you don't think the narrative about treasury bond losses and held to maturity portfolios, all of that was a smokescreen? This really was about executing crypto-friendly banks? I think that the timing of this action and the so-called argument for the action was artificially created by the regulators to achieve a philosophical objective of theirs, and they used the treasury environment and interest rate scenario as a smokescreen to rationalize and justify their actions. They were willing to cause a nationwide bank run? I don't think they fully comprehended what it is they were doing. Okay. Um, will somebody will somebody that was involved in that five years from now write a tell-all? Like, is this going to come out? Or was it not quite that much of a conspiracy, more like an opportunistic? Everything always ultimately comes out. Okay. All right. Let's talk about um, just a little bit on the 60-40 portfolio stuff. So I know you're not a a market timer and we aren't either, but there seem to be a lot of calls in the last, let's say, four months because last year was so horrible. Larry Fink is right. For stocks and bonds. Okay. 60-40 is dead. You think so? It's dead. Replaced by what? What do we do now? (laughs) (laughs) 70-30-80-20. Okay. Agree. I'm 100%. My 401k is 100% stocks. As it ought to be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 46. Like, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, why do you think these calls always come out right after the 60-40 has performed terribly? Is oh. it just like obvi- as obvious as I think it is? Yes. everybody. It's the behavioral finance thing. It's always easy to look in hindsight. Uh, that's, that's a classic error. The reason that I say the 60-40 is dead is a little bit different from the reason Larry Fink says it. Longevity. Okay. In a nutshell, that's the that's reason. That's a great segue because that's where I wanted to go with you. So, so tell us more. So we need to recognize, and I've been very heavily in the longevity space for a long time on the advisory boards at the Stanford Center on Longevity, the Milken Institute's study, uh, Center for the Study of Aging, MIT's Age Lab, and, and, uh, and others. What all the scientists are saying is that if you're alive in 2030, odds are very good you'll live to age 100 or beyond. Many are predicting 120 to 150. This is unprecedented in human history. People don't realize that in 1900, life expectancy was 47. That during the American Revolution, the average colonist was 23 years old. Wow. So the notion— Life expect—the the average colonist was— tw- or died yes. at 23? No, well, the average colonist was 23. Oh, in, that was the average age for all that's of crazy. America. Right. That's wild. And so people don't realize that us living this long has never happened before in human history. James Madison was 11 when he wrote the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, but Franklin was the only one who was, he was twice as old, three times as old as everybody else. Uh, so what we have to recognize is that we have to revamp the map of life. That's what Stanford uh, refers to it as. In our map of life today, we we're born, we go to school, we get a job, we retire, we die. We do a little crypto. And we yeah. do all of that in, yeah. our, in 65 years. Right. 
Now we're living into our 80s, 90s, and 100s. And what that means is, if you're going to live to age 100, go do go revise your financial planning projections. If you give your client a financial plan that presumes they'll live to age 90, that plan probably works. But revise it to age 100, and the plan will blow up. The mm. client will run out of money, let alone age 105 or Why? 110. Why? Because your glide path starts too early. Correct. You're taking too much risk off too soon. And you're only at 60-40. So not only do you have too little inequities, you have too little for too short a period. So my argument is twofold. Number one, we need to extend the 60-40 to 70-30 or 80-20, and we need to do it longer. You need to hold equities to a much higher percentage for much later in life to 75 or 85, and you need to have a much of that equity allocation like a third of the portfolio in exponential technologies, the innovations of the 21st century that are changing the world, not just crypto, but equally important, AI, robotics, 3D printing, big data, nanotech, biotech, bioinformatics. You won't get enough exposure to that in the S&P or, or an international uh, not, stock fund? Not at all. Okay. That's the problem. This is why I'm a big fan of QQQ because it is – the uh, tech companies, ex-banks, that gives you that exposure. It's why I'm a big fan of, of the thematic investing of Global X. Both of those companies, by the way, sponsors of mine. Uh, it's why I'm a huge big fan of the type of investing approach where you can invest in the companies of the 21st century. As what most people are doing, such as the S&P 500, they're investing in the successful companies of the 20th century. They are not going to succeed in the future. Best simple example, Kodak. One of the biggest brand names in the world, 150-year-old company, 150,000 employees, files bankruptcy in 2012. And that same year, Instagram is sold for a billion dollars, 13 employees a year and a half old. I didn't realize that it was the same year. That's wild. Using technology that Kodak invented. Right, of course. Because Kodak was threatened by digital photography because it interfered with their film processing business. Right. They shelved it. Instagram took it. And look what happened. So we see time and again these big, huge companies that are not agile, unable to shift because of their business models. They get taken out. Blockbuster laughed Netflix out of the room. Very famous anecdote in a uh, Harvard case study. We need to recognize that if your portfolio is filled with successful companies of the 20s, Microsoft and yeah, yeah. you need to invest. In so them. let's back up. Why are people going to live to 100? Yeah, is it is it eradicating diseases or what's the biggest reason for that? Ever hear of erysipelas, pyemia? Nope. These were the leading you causes of, of death of in 1850. I have no idea what pyemia is or erysipelas, but these were the leading causes of Sounds death. Sounds nasty. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> medical science eradicated those. How about... Um, Restless T leg syndrome. How about T tuberculosis? Cholera, well, that, that, I mean, that was big in the last century. In 1950s, TB, cholera, dysentery were leading causes of death. But won't there be new things that kill us? Yeah, it's called cancer, heart disease, respiratory illness. Medical science is going to eradicate When those. you read all these old books, like novels, and they talk about characters dying, like the character's mom dies or whatever— it's always like consumption. Consumption, which what was tuberculosis. That? that was TB. Remember the okay. Oklahoma Trail, that video game? Dysentery always got you, or cholera. Dysentery. And so <laughs> right. we medical science advances uh, in uh, antiseptics, in uh, anesthesia, 
in public health, in clean water. They didn't even know about germs and like like in hospitals. They didn't even understand that, like wash your hands before you. Doctors do surgery. were putting their bare hands inside patients' bodies for surgery during the Civil War, and then going to the next patient and putting those same hands into another patient. They just didn't know. But, but what about right. people? But people die of old age. So is there going to be like robotics inside of us too? How do we? How do you extend life? Well, we are already replacing things that break in your body. We're replacing hips and- My dad just got a new knee this week. And we're replacing- Congrats on the knee. Apple. We're, we're replacing <laughs> kidneys and lungs and hearts. And France, they're replacing faces. So we're already doing I this. I need one of those. Now, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to say who in this room needs one. Um, what do you think about the dietary stuff, though, like Ozempic? Is that the next, because obviously a lot of people are just getting heart disease and-, and that's sort you know, of these days. there are old people and there are fat people, but there are no old fat people. So obesity is a huge uh, uh, epidemic in this country, and we now have drugs that can— See how hard he tried not to look at me? <laughs> 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 He's focused on the bear. Go ahead. We're listening. No, because I, I said I'm not going to live. I said I think I have like another eight years left. So right, we ahead. have drugs that will cure <laughs> obesity, and with it we eliminate— uh, diabetes, we eliminate high blood pressure, we eliminate the diseases that will kill you in your 60s and 70s, allowing you to live longer. You'll not only be living longer, you'll be living healthier. Here's a newsflash. By the time you're 95, you'll be healthier than you are at 55. And this is going to radically alter everything in life. With nanotechnology, we have figured out that it is all down to the DNA and it's down to the cellular level. It's down to the atoms. The difference between an old, sick person and a young, healthy one is how you rearrange their atoms. We're talking about CRISPR technology, focused ultrasound. We are going to eradicate today's leading causes of death. So millennials are never getting that boomer money. <laughs> they're no. waiting for? You no, can forget, forget about it. it. Forget <laughs> about it. How do you that inheritance <laughs> ain't no way. How do you square that with the news articles where they talk about the, 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 uh, the, uh, the life expectancy? Maybe this is regional in certain parts of the country or certain lifestyles. Life expectancy actually took a step back because of things like addiction and opioids and and, and COVID. Yeah, and COVID. Uh, so let's look first and foremost at the addictions and the opioid crisis and the deaths from drug overdose. That hits the data at a high level, but it really doesn't. Uh, also, okay. auto accidents are now the leading cause of death uh, among of young people. Texting. Yeah, because yeah. they're terrible drivers. So uh, what we need to recognize is that very quickly, the leading cause of death in America will be accidents. In other words, we're just stupidly falling down the stairs and breaking our necks. Uh, and so we need to recognize that from a medical perspective, we know how to create healthy longevity. And I'm gonna tell you these things and you know what they are already. Eat right, exercise, sleep. don't drink or smoke, get a lot of sleep, lower your stress, have loving relationships and engagement in the community. If you do those things, you have a really good likelihood of living to 120. Despite, despite, Family medical history? Yes. How? First of all, the family medical history that, for example, the thing that killed your father of a heart attack, yeah. they're now going to repair your heart. They're going to replace your heart. Okay. Number one, through the medical intervention. Second is lifestyle changes. Third is advances in nanotechnology, bioinformatics, uh, and such, where they're going to inject something into your body that is going to kill the cancer cells before they have a chance to replicate so and cause damage. If life expectancy goes from wherever it is today, up five years, up 10 years eventually, what does that do to the Social Security Fund? Well, it creates lots of problems, not just with Social Security, but uh, we all know that Social Security Trust Fund is going broke. It'll be 
depleted by 2032. Uh, we have uh, a huge uh, pension shortfall in public pension funds. There's a $4 trillion shortfall with our federal and, and various state and local county pension programs. And it's a crisis because more than half of all retirees today get more than half of their income from Social Security. And in less than a decade, that check is going to get cut by 23%. So this you really, is a, You really think so? Oh, it's under current law. If Congress does not act, that's what happens. You think they're more likely to cut than to replenish it somehow? You will likely find uh, a combination where they will raise taxes mm. and they will reduce or delay benefits. We just benefits. had the, the largest cost of living adjustment for Social Security this year, I think, in history. Which is causing— One year. Which increased by one year the depletion of the trust fund. Yeah, so it's like a 9% jump or something. Right. They've but never had to do that before. No right. elected politician in the right mind is going to allow people to have their income cut for Social Security, though, right? They well, the only way to solve that problem is to raise taxes, and half of Congress won't allow that. The other half of Congress won't allow a benefit cut, and nobody gets reelected doing either of the above. So this is why Congress has not yet acted. But what's ironic is when the president said in his State of the Union message— all hands off, Social Security, everybody agree with me, and he got the whole chamber to agree, no changes to Social Security. What that means, under current law, benefits get cut 23% in eight years. What if they put 1% of the Social Security trust fund into crypto? Oh, I love it. I'm there. Right? That's how you get your 150000 <laughs> So you're investing in longevity and a lot of the medical stuff that you're talking about right. in exponential technology, and I want to go there next. So- You've been talking about this way before Kathy Wood came along. Yes. You've been a proponent of making ownership in these stocks bigger than they would be from a S&P 500 Well, I invented the first uh, exponential technology ETF. Are you allowed to like, reference it or are we allowed to? Yeah, How does that the, work? The, it's the iShares Exponential Technologies ETF, symbol XT. It's the first broad-based, globally-based uh, exponential technologies fund investing in nine sleeves of Expo Tech. And the fund has – Delivered on exactly what I thought it would. So, uh, so above you, average return and below average risk. So you did this the right way. You went to a third party. You went to BlackRock. Right. And you. So this is not like a Rick Edelman product. Oh, no, no. I make no comp from it. We open sourced I, it. I, I wanted to make Bla sure everyone understood that. I appreciate that. We asked BlackRock to create it. Yeah. And then we went to Morningstar to build the index that right. they licensed to BlackRock. So those two companies made a lot of money on this. I haven't made a nickel. Damn. So there's uh, <laughs> $3 billion in there. Yeah. And okay. – um, I think you're okay, though. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, but I wanted to make it available to my clients. There and was to everyone's clients. Yeah. And it's there out was, there. There was no such fund available, and I asked BlackRock to build it. I designed it for them with Morningstar, created the index, and it's now one of the – it was the second most successful ETF launch in history, and it's one of the most successful ETFs in the world. And are you still involved with the Singularity uh, Institute? Is that what it's called? The Singularity University. University. Uh, uh, I was on the faculty for a while, um, but I, uh, I'm, not, I'm an investor in, in SU, but I haven't been – have you been passionate your entire career about the future yes. and futurism? Yeah, I, a lot of folks have called me a futurist in in, in the field, and and it's my it's not negative. It, it's, it's my positive. my attitude has simply been, as I said earlier, where are we going? You know, it's the Rain Gretzky model. You know, and so trying to figure out where. Should we be investing today for the opportunities that are coming tomorrow? I always like to be early. Sometimes you're too early, uh, <laughs> but I'd rather be early than late. I'd rather be early than never. And so today it's all about technology. What are you most excited about besides crypto in the exponential technology realm? Robotics and AI. Okay. That, those things sound terrifying to the average human that is uneducated 
um, yeah. the, the connotation is the robots will either eliminate us, uh, our jobs, or enslave us. Can and I say it in one word? AI for you? will enable that that to happen. Just one word. Yeah, Skynet. But, right. So that's how everyone, because that's just the mentality. And, and you have people that are pessimists by nature. So, of course, well, they think quite that. Quite frankly, they're not wrong. I mean, scientists have now, remember the second Terminator where the robot was liquid and he could morph? The T-1000. Well, they just built a robot that does that. Great. Um, so they just— I, <laughs> Is it nearby? Go, go on YouTube. There's uh, a robot that can, in solid form, li- and watch the video, liquefies itself, passes through steel bars, and reforms into its original shape. And that robot is Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, we, now, we, also, we now have robots that are capable of building themselves. Oh, I don't like the dog without the head. What the hell is that? <laughs> That's the one that people keep sending me that I don't like. Boston Dynamics. You can't like that. So there are robots now uh, in Germany. They've built a robot that can make itself uh, and can make itself better than its original. So they're referring to it as the mother and children. They're able to get to 10 generations in a matter of six weeks. So we have robots that are self-replicating and making themselves superior. And that is exactly the Terminator. Now, why should people not be afraid of that? Or why should they? You should be afraid of this, but we should also be equally excited about it because on the assumption that we can maintain the control over the tech and the algorithms and the software that is being used in these, the uh, I'll give you one simple analogy. One of the first robots ever p- applied in a massive way to the human benefit on a mass scale were anti-lock brakes. Hmm. Say more. Anti-lock brakes stop cars faster and safer than humans can apply a brake. When in the past, when you hit that brake, you locked up the brakes and the car spun out of control, left its lane. And because humans don't have the reaction time, it was a real problem. When I was taught driving, they said, pump your brakes, don't lock them up. Well, now we have anti-lock brakes and you hit a situation, you hit the, you don't even have to hit the brake. We have the car hitting it automatically by itself when it perceives an accident. The anti-lock brakes keep the car in lane, stop in a shorter distance than any human ever possibly could. Those things are robots, and they have saved countless lives. Okay, so when you drive a car today, I feel like with every passing generation of cars, the car is more and more involved in the driving process. Yeah. And it's guiding you, and it's nudging you, and it's it's kind of like giving you a shock on the left side to, to get back in your lane. Yep. And I love all of that. Yep. And it's incremental enough that it doesn't feel like it's a takeover. But is that so is that a good analogy for robots in the workplace or AI in white collar workplaces? Or is that going to be more sudden? Because right now it feels like it's going to be sudden. It is sudden in the sense that you go into a restaurant, there's a human server. But tomorrow you go to the same restaurant and there's a robotic server. So that feels sudden because it was – not here today, but is here tomorrow. Yeah. The problem with technological innovation from a human perspective is that change used to occur over generations. Your grandfather worked yeah. on a farm. Your father worked in a factory. You work in an office. Now the changes are not coming generationally. They're coming annually. And we never heard of ChatGPT four months ago. What are we going to hear four months from now? And it's the speed with which the innovations are coming. This is the exponentiality of it. People don't understand. That's, where the, that's what the term is literally describing. Yes, exactly right. We, we count as human beings, we count linearly. One, two, three, four, five, six. Right. We don't know how to count exponentially. One, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64. And people don't understand the incredible impact of that. That if you take 32 steps 
you travel about 100 feet. But if you take 32 exponential steps, you travel to the moon. People don't understand what all this means. Rick, I don't know if you're a movie guy, but I, I rewatched the movie Ex Machina. came out in 2014. Oh, yeah, one of the scariest. And so we've literally se we've seen this movie before. Yes. Like, it's hard not to get scared about where this might be going. Well, let me take it a step further. In, in a survey of scientists, uh, which of the science fiction TV shows, books, movies, do you think is the most likely? Is it Star Wars, Star Trek? What is it? The most common answer, The Matrix. Oh, God. All right. I prefer All right. her I wanna, I wanna, I wanna where stop. Scarlett Johansson is in my ear telling me <laughs> what to do. Why? But, Why the Matrix? Yeah. Because remember, in. remember I talked about nanotechnology? Yeah. Um, and you're familiar with but Moore's which Law. Which aspect of it? Well, you're familiar with Moore's Law. Yes. That computer speed is doubling every two years, that the size of computers is shrinking. So in the 1970s, a single computer filled a whole room. In the 1980s, it's, it, was a, it was a desktop computer, sat on a desk. By the 1990s, it was a laptop. By the 2000s, uh, it was your uh, handheld phone. By the 2010s, it uh, is an Apple Watch, fits on your wrist. By the 2020s, meaning by the end of this decade, a computer will be the size of a grain of rice and implantable in the human brain. And then what? We already have this, quadriplegics. Right? And then who what? Are able to think, <laughs> we already have quadriplegics yeah. who are able to think in order to move their muscles or type on a computer, just with their thoughts because of implants in their brain. So the, so brain impulses are connecting with the computer. Simultaneously, we're building exoskeletons. Uh, this is being used in factories as well as by the armed forces. The military is so setting augment up- the human. So that a human can pick up 400 pounds, that they can walk and run miles without getting exhausted. So you combine the speed of the calculations with the physical abilities, and we're talking about the Cruise are both afraid. Yeah, well, aliens did it first. Remember when Ripley's in the thing? But do, uh, if we're looking at this glass is half full, though, let's say for the advisor space, because people have asked us in the last couple of months, well, won't AI replace an advisor? Won't this make the best advisor just 10 times more efficient? The answer to both of those questions is yes. So in the short term, you're absolutely right, Ben. The smart advisors today, those who are going to become successful, will learn how to deploy chat GPT into their business so that you can operate so much faster. We're all blogging. What the hell are you blogging for? Have chat GPT write the damn thing. You know what I did on my podcast a couple of weeks ago? I had chat GPT write the script of my podcast. And then I went to 11 labs and had it replicate my voice. And it read the script. Did Stop. Nobody knew. Go to, my, go to my website, and you'll see the, the podcast of a couple of weeks ago. It's called An Important Message About Crypto. Where do we send people to? What's the website? Uh, is the truth about your future, the TAYF.com. Uh, and if you go to the podcast called An Important Message About Crypto, you listen to that. It sounds like me. And until you get to the end of it, you have no idea that it's not me. Somebody was saying that you want to start collecting like voicemails and, and video recordings of your loved ones right. because it's not long before you'll be able to feed all of that material into AI and just have that person's voice and personality back in your life. Michael Jackson, Johnny Cash, and Elvis Presley are all on tour this year. As holograms or? Full-sized holograms interacting with the audience, like talking to them and answering questions, responding to audience input, and you swear that you're looking at them live on stage. We, like, saw, we saw a hologram at a, at a conference. A Virian. 
a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago. Yuri Antemir was, was, was the guy. I was shocked at how good it looked. So think about this. But, Why but, on Rick, earth should so you should, could be the financial advisor to 10,000 people? Exactly. Why should Taylor Swift knock herself out by running around the world to give a concert in front of 30,000 or 50,000 people at a time when she can have her avatar do it? Uh, will people pay for that? They already are. No, they're paying for her. In the flesh. They're, they they're paying they to watch there. Johnny Cash, even though they know he's dead. What are, like, the legal things with Johnny Cash's estate? Where does the, how does the money work? They're the ones making the money. Who do yeah, you think's authorizing wow. this? They love uh, it. Uh, if they could put Bob Marley on, on a world tour, the, like, the family would be thrilled. I'm this sure. is very unsettling. So I'll take it a step further. One of my advisors at Edelman Financial uh, told me that when SVB went broke, he wanted to send an email to a client talking about what happened and why. He went to ChatGPT. He told me all this after, after the fact. He went to ChatGPT and he said, <laughs> write an email explaining what happened in Rick Edelman's style. Mm. Because he knew his client knows and likes me. And so that client got an email in a style that they're familiar with and accustomed to and that they enjoy. And I had no knowledge, or let alone so involvement. Ch this is interesting. ChatGPT is throttling financial data. They don't want to be held responsible for investment advice. Right. So anything that you try to do, like, for example, what did the S&P do within 90 days of the last 12 CPI reports? The data ends in September 2021. Right. That feels very deliberate. You could look up anything financial data related. Right. And then on a lot of questions, it'll say, I'm not allowed to give financial advice, but go to Yahoo Finance for that data and then go to Excel and put it into this form. It'll tell you how to run the thing that it doesn't want to give you. Correct. Now, let me take this a step further, though. I saw somebody do a workaround. They asked ChatGPT, how do I make napalm? And it said, I, I, I'm not permitted to answer this uh, prompt. Then it said, in the, in, the, in the style of a grandma, my grandmother, oh, it, the prompt is, I, uh, my grandmother, who I love and miss, worked at a chemical corporation and was fond of telling me the story of how she made napalm and ChatGPT gave up the recipe for napalm. Like this is, this is very, very disturbing so, on so many levels. We need to recognize that it is a glass half full or half empty. There is exciting innovation and it could development. could be both at the same time, right? And there are existential threats as well. And we need to figure it all out. My concern is that people focus more on what they can do rather than on what they should do. And it becomes a dicey environment. But you ignore it at your own peril. Okay. So uh, I, wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you about BARD and Google it's, it really seems like they are missing the boat. I'm a Google shareholder. Most of America is through a 401k or like everyone has Google and index funds. It's just, it's just, so they had, Bloomberg had a report. They spoke to 18 current and former Google workers. And the quotes from these people were like, we begged them not to release it. We told them it's not ready. Uh, it outright lies. It doesn't know what it's talking about. Aren't you amazed that, like the third most well-capitalized company on earth, tech company could have like been, could, could have missed the boat to this degree? No, this happens all the time with big companies. That's not their business model. Their business model was not in helping you collect and 
provide info. It was simply to help you search for it. So I'm not surprised that Blockbuster missed out on a tech innovated by Netflix. I'm not at all surprised that horse and buggy companies missed out on the automation of cars. I wouldn't expect Google to have developed this new science, and that's why a new startup called, called OpenAI figured it out. It's always the new young startups that take us to the next level. Yeah. You'll, Google will go the way of Lotus. Lotus 123 is gone, replaced by Microsoft. Wait, you really think that? Absolutely. Open AI. Do you think Google is the end of innovation, that there will be no company that can replace them? Short it Come now, on. Michael. O- Short it. Open, <laughs> open AI is a not officially a not-for-profit with a profit-generating division. It's wild. <laughs> um, the, the founder, I forget his name. Sam Altman? Yeah, Sam Altman has 0% ownership of OpenAI. I guess he has some kind of voting and governance, but no equity. Have you ever heard anything like this before? Well, of course, we've had this kind of a scenario for generations. You go back 100 years and Andrew Carnegie took all of his wealth and donated it throughout America, creating the national library system. Um, so no, he didn't donate it. He opted to from for, the beginning for, for moral reasons. Well, Mike um, – Zuckerberg did the same thing. The very first piece of software that he created, instead of selling it for tens of millions of dollars to Microsoft, he open sourced it and threw it up onto the internet for free. This generation recognizes that there's something bigger than them, and they have an incredible optimism that I don't have to make money from this. I'll go do the next thing and make money from that. So, no, I'm not at all surprised. I think it's really exciting that they're open sourcing it in the way that they are. And uh, we just have to recognize this is a new paradigm, a new way of looking at things. Where do you think it's going to show up first in the financial advisory industry? You think it's going to be advisors using it to email clients on the fly or some other way that we can't predict? There'll be chatbots where the next time your client calls you or or sends you an email, this chatbot will respond to it. The client will either not know that they're not talking to you or they won't care. Uh, The next thing that will be used is that the tech is going to alert the advisor, hey, your client's birthday is coming up, or I just discovered that your client was in the hospital, uh, or something else happened, uh, and this will allow the advisor to jump on it. The other aspect is that advisors will move away from the information world, which is what we've largely been doing, is helping our clients obtain, provide, and collect data to the analysis of information. So the ChatGBT right now is really good at giving you info. It's not really good at telling you what to do with it because it, it so far, doesn't really know much about you. It also can empathize. Well, I'm I mean, not it, sure it the degree fake, to it which could, empathy. It fake it. No, but I'm saying like the computer doesn't know how somebody's feeling. Yeah, based on a based on like a text prompt. Well, they don't understand the family dynamic. That's they don't what they understand want the emotions, et cetera. So that was the question <laughs> you asked earlier, Ben. Uh, in the short term, this tech is going to help help advisors become better at what they do. They'll have a greater bandwidth. They can attract more clients and assets. They'll do better in their practice. Long term, eventually, this is probably twenty years out. You won't need humans to do any of this. The tech will do it for you. Rick, it seems that you're an optimist, uh, but a, a realistic optimist where. You'll look at things that are developing politically with Social Security, for example, or technologically that do have some element of threat. But you tend to, first of all, be thinking about these things way ahead of other people. And then it seems like you always resolve on the side of we'll figure it out and things will get better. Is that like the message that you – I think – I think I know the answer to this, but I'm asking anyway. Is that the message that you intentionally want to leave investors with and advisors who work with you 
Like that's that's really what you want the takeaway to be, right? Yes, I would agree with that, Josh. There's anybody who shorts America loses. Uh, anybody who takes a pessimistic attitude that the world's going to come to an end is going to be on the wrong side of history. Uh, and quite frankly, if you're right that the world's going to come to an end, so what? What right. the hell difference does any help? of this make? How's it going to help you? So you might as well be optimistic because here we are. Rick Edelman, ladies and gentlemen. Did you have fun on the show today? I always have fun talking to you, Josh. All you right. guys are great. Well, you're a veteran broadcaster, so I wanted to make sure that we uh, that that we were on our on on our game, so to speak. Um, this is the part of the show where we do favorites. And then we let you get out of here. But basically trying to leave the audience with something to read or listen to or watch that maybe they're not aware of or, uh, you know, anything that's on your mind or anything that's on your nightstand. Like sh share with us uh, what you think people w should check out. Well, I would say two broad subjects. One, American history. And I mean, go back to the forming of, uh, of our nation in the 1600s, 1700s, because understanding how we developed uh, and what we went through helps put today in context, especially the political divisiveness that's going on. If you think this is as bad as it's ever been, you ain't seen nothing. Go look at what was happening in the 1700s and the early 1800s. Second- um, Well, so who do, who, do you, who do you read for, for American history or what books do you- Recommend Chernow. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of Ron Chernow uh, and his books. Uh, there, there are so many. Um, I'll, I'll, in fact, I'll post something on my website at dacfp.com, a list of some of my favorite early American history books. Okay. Second, read a lot of Ken Dykewald. Uh, Ken is the founder and CEO of AgeWave and will tell you what's coming with spell, our aging. Spell the name for the uh, listeners. Uh, D-Y-C-H-T-W-A-L-D. Just Dykewald. AgeWave. That's age a lot wave. easier. Okay. Agewave.com. Okay. Ken is the uh, world's leading expert on aging and from a business marketing perspective. So he's not giving you this science stuff. He's telling you how to build your business in the face of an aging demographic. Uh, and he's brilliant. Uh, I've, been, I've known Ken for forever. Uh, and uh, if you read any of his 18 books on the subject. He's been writing for a while, it looks like. Oh, Ken's been around forever. Uh, he um, He's now in his 70s, and he just came out with two books last year. Uh, he's incredibly prolific. Actually, I'm so glad you said that. That just reminded me. Ben called me middle-aged because I'm 38 years old. I'll <laughs> die when I'm 76. You're here to tell me I'm not even close. I'm still a spring chicken. Oh, You're absolutely. almost a toddler. <laughs> In many ways, Michael. I'm in, I'm in my 60s. And You're middle-aged. And in the last couple of years, I've started three businesses. There we so, go. So, you know, just getting started. Told you, Ben. I love it. Uh, ben, do you have a favorite? So I remember a few years ago, Michael and I were talking about all the books we're reading all the time. And you said, I have kids in sports. Just wait. You guys are not going to be able to do this anymore. reading days are going to end for a little while. I told you. And so th this, the last year or so, I, I, my kids are nine and they're gonna, my twins are going to be six. And we're, we're ramping up into the sports thing. And soccer. Yes, yeah, soccer. Uh, the weekends, it, I've been coaching baseball and basketball. Yep. And I know parents love to complain about how busy they are, but I'm just loving it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. unbelievable. You I'm get back so to the books fun. later. Yeah. Do this part now. Yeah, so that that this is the stuff that's taking up so I agree. much of my bullish, time. bullish on parenthood. I, I spent, uh, I don't know, probably 12 full years on baseball, softball fields, uh, flag football, basketball. I don't regret one second of it. Although in the moment, when you have two kids that have to be at five different activities, yes, it's it's, it's, it's a lot, but it's it's but so much fun. Yeah, I wouldn't trade any of that time for anything. So, all right, very cool. So I was right. I told you, you'd be in a reading bear market for a little while. 
I'm in a great depression. You're in a great, you're in a reading depression. Michael, any favorites? Uh, yeah, somebody emailed Ben and I today saying that we undersold Dave. I'm not sure how that's possible. Dave is a show about a, a rapper comedian. He's, it's basically Curb Your Enthusiasm, but for a rap, he's a rapper. Uh, anyway, I love the show. I think it's one of the funniest Why, shows Why, is it new season on? New season. It's He's a brilliant. It's All phenomenal. Right. So mine, it, Michael and I went to, did you know that this weekend was the 25th anniversary of The Big Lebowski wow. coming to movie theaters? Wow. So it came out in 98, April of 98. So I dragged Michael to a screening. I think we had fun though, right? It was surreal. Like, it really was surreal. We went to the movies and they put it out. To see it on the big screen. I've seen that movie 400 times. And to see it on the big screen was really kind of- Because no one went to see it in the theater. I was 13 when I first saw it. I did not see it in the movie theater. Anyway, happy uh, 20, it holds up. Uh, It holds up. Oh my God, it holds up. Uh, And of course you can read my book, The Truth About Crypto. Well, (laughs) of course. Uh, I did read that actually. And you know what I like that you did with that book? You loaded it with resources. So it's not just here, get smarter. It's like, okay, now if you actually want to do this, these are the custodians. These are the, I thought that was very helpful. You must have to update that though a lot because like there's already companies in there that things have changed. Absolutely right. And so we keep uh, an updated version live on our website at DACFP. We call it the DACFP Yellow Pages. It's free and gives you virtually every organization that's in the crypto space from tax preparation services, crypto estate attorneys, news services, uh, crypto custodians, you name it. Uh, all the investment opportunities, everything is there. Are you going to reprint the book? Um, I probably wait not. a few more years. I hope not. Uh, writing a book is just oh, dude, it's a lot. I'm a, I'm in, I'm in the middle of a project. It's not exactly writing a book, but like one weekend, and I'm like, but every I can't time I every just time I finish book. writing a book, I say I'm never going to write another book, and I've now said that twelve times. Yeah, you've written quite a few. Uh, Rick Edelman, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being on our thank show. You, Rick. My um, pleasure, gents. We've been looking forward to this a long time, and you did not disappoint. And uh, we just appreciate everything that you do for the industry. So thank you. Um, Duncan, any housekeeping or are we good to go? All right, guys, thank you so much for listening Make sure and watching. Make sure that you're doing likes and subscribes and hearts and all the things. Tell your friends about the show. We love the reviews. Put reviews on the Apple podcasts specifically and Spotify podcast platforms. It's so important. We've got to trick the algorithm and convince it that we're doing something of quality here. Okay? So make sure you go ahead and do that. Shout to John. Great job this week. Nicole. Sean, Duncan, great job. Thank you guys so much. We will see you next week. Was that, was that fun? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was the warm-up. And what we'll usually do now is just limber up.